Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Welcome to Everybody in the Pool, the podcast for the climate economy. We dive deep into the climate crisis and come up with solutions. I'm Molly Wood. This week, something a little different. Instead of an entrepreneur, I'm talking to an actual investor, someone in charge of directing a lot of money in a space we've talked a little bit about already, real estate, buildings, and the built environment. And this is interesting all by itself. We'll talk about some cool technologies for buildings and property and whatnot. But what I really like about this story is that the fund itself, the venture capital fund, is funded largely by the real estate industry. Because as the climate crisis gets more acute and unavoidable, industries themselves are trying to figure out creative ways to fund solutions to their own problems. All right, here we go. My name is Greg Smithies, and I'm the co-head of climate investing at a fund called Fifth Wall. It's so hard to know which origin story to start with here. I think probably best, because you're the first investor to come on Everybody in the Pool, yep. probably best to explain Fifth Wall because it's a it's a bit of a unique beast in the investing world. Yeah, ab- absolutely. So uh, Fifth Wall these days, uh, about a $3.5 billion under management venture capital fund, very focused on what we call the built environment. So think of that as real estate and construction, a little bit of uh, infrastructure, basically things with atoms that were constructed. And the interesting thing about where Fifth Wall's money comes from is that round about half of it comes from very traditional people who give money to venture capital firms, so think pension funds, sovereign wealth funds, things like that. But the other half of the people who give money to Fifth Wall is a very large consortium of corporations in and around this space. So we've got 115 of them. They're in 17 countries. And these are people who own or operate buildings and, uh, and real estate, people who build buildings as well, and then other people who sort of touch adjacently this, this industry. So think insurance companies, because there's $326 trillion of buildings out there and they're worth less if they're underwater on fire. And uh, building materials companies and the mining industry, because 60% of the world's steel goes into buildings, right? So really what the, the mission here is to get the industry together um, as a consortium to go and invest in the technologies that A, can make the industry better, but B, decarbonize it. And then I run the decarbonizing side of the house. Right. And so Fifth Wall was set up with this original mission around buildings and what we sometimes call prop tech and and real estate innovations. And then the climate part of that practice is relatively new. Can you talk about why that was sort of a natural outgrowth and then where it came from? Yep, absolutely. So I'll kind of give you two parts of the origin story because it actually uh, came from two sides. There's the fifth wall side of the story and there's my side of the story. So I'll maybe start with my side of the story, which is great. Prior to this, I started my investment in career at a fund called Battery Ventures. People might be familiar with that. It's an old school sort of Boston-based venture capital fund. I spent most of my time there doing uh, what at the time was very, uh, very unsexy stuff. It was industrial tech. So I was looking at construction, manufacturing, heavy industry type things. So it was a very different background in uh, in investing. Hmm. Fast forward a couple of years, and I decided... If you're going to be an investor, you probably should have operating experience. That's a little bit of a controversial statement. I don't know why. 
but but I really think, hey, if I'm going it to go, it depends on and, the room. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it depends on the room. Exactly, exactly. Uh, you know, if I'm going to go and tell CEOs how to run their company, it would be behoove me to have actually done something in the real world, right? So I ended up uh, through hook or by crook in Elon Musk world, reporting directly to Elon at two of his companies. I was head of finance and operations at the Boring Company, uh, so digging tunnels and uh, selling flamethrowers, more importantly, and at Neuralink, putting microchips in people's heads. More importantly. <laughs> more importantly, definitely. Mm -hmm. um, and I did that for about, uh, for about five years on, on the operating side. And that's really where I got into this idea that, hey, climate is coming, meaning clean tech 1.0 may have been a little bit of a dud, but there was an impending tidal wave of things that needed to happen around climate. And anytime there's a tidal wave of, you know, uh, uh, industries clashing or colliding or something like an energy transition going on, that's when, frankly, people make a lot of money, right? Mm -hmm. It's those sort mm -hmm. of crises and mobilization of capital, which is when, as a venture capitalist, you really should be pouncing on it. So I'd love to say that I got into this specifically for uh, ethical reasons, but it was that I saw this sort of impending tidal wave of, of money moving. Yeah. I was going to back you up a little bit and say, what was it about digging tunnels, flamethrowers, and putting chips in people's head that made you go, Oh yeah, you know, the sky is falling climate-wise? <laughs> I missed that connection a little bit. <laughs> you missed the connection. So um, in Cleantech 1.0, it was that many of these technologies, so I think solar and wind at the time, were not economically competitive. Mm -hmm. We should probably actually, for this audience, we should probably say what we mean when we say clean tech 1.0, because I think people are not entirely familiar. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, you know, certainly the scars are all around us here in Silicon Valley, <laughs> but people are not entirely familiar with this phenomenon. Yeah, absolutely. So so there was a brief moment, let's call it, and I think the dates are probably uh, a little bit uh, squishy here, but let's call it from maybe 2003 to maybe 2009, when there was a, a very big explosion in investment around what at the time was called clean tech, right? Today we call it climate tech, but at the time it was called clean tech. And there was, this was the first iteration of, of things like solar manufacturing. And we saw a bunch of companies that did well out of that, think for solar, a bunch of very big smoking craters, think Solyndra, you know, the, the Biden administration, sorry, not the Biden, the Obama administration got sort of pilloried for some of these big losses. But the point is, is that we had this golden little moment where a lot of money was flowing into these technologies. And then the 2008 sort of financial crisis happened. And many of these technologies just didn't make economic sense. You know, solar was 10 times more expensive than it is today. And so many of these businesses just weren't economically viable. And so we had a massive crush in the entire industry. And effectively, clean tech or climate tech investing disappeared for around about a decade because of this, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that's the sort of nuclear winter that many of us on the side uh, have lived through. And um, rolling forward to then my time in Elon world, what I saw happening was one, Elon's companies are Atom's companies. He needs to build factories. They're very capital intensive, and yet he was raising lots and lots of money. So that was telling me that the world was ready again to start investing in these sorts of businesses, these capital intensive businesses that deal with Atom's. Mm. And then two, is the fact that many of these foundational technologies like solar had come down in cost to the point where they were actually economically viable, where you could with a straight face say to an active climate change denying CFO, you should buy the cheapest electricity available to you. Oh, and by the way, that happens to be clean, right? So those two things of capital availability plus these technologies being economically viable said to me, okay, we're actually going to probably see a big 
big impending tidal wave of capital mobilization to these things again. Because mm-hmm. uh, you can trust people's uh, ethical reasons for doing this, and that's fine. But if you want the fat middle of the market to do stuff, just trust their, their economic reasons for doing it, right? And it looked like the economic chickens were coming home to roost. So Greg went knocking on doors at venture capital firms, and this was only back in 2016 or 2017, trying to convince them climate was going to be a big opportunity. Most big firms weren't interested back then. He ended up getting a job at BMW Ventures, investing in battery and electrification tech, and then met the folks at Fifth Wall. And I said to them, hey, here's a crazy idea. Buildings account for 40% of the CO2 emissions on the planet. They consume, you know, 30 to 40% of all of the energy. But if you look at the total dollars around climate tech going into the space, it's negligible. It's like nothing. All of the clean tech dollars are going into, into vehicles, frankly. Um, and so I think you should get into this because at the time they were the 800-pound gorilla in all technologies around buildings. And buildings, it's the largest asset class on the planet, right? It's 10 to 20% of the GDP of any country, right? So if someone is going to be a big market for clean, clean tech and climate tech things, buildings and real estate should be it. So I said, hey, you guys should do this. They said, that's a fantastic idea. We've actually been working on it for about six months. And then just from the fifth wall side to round it out, the reason why had they come up with this idea as something that they should be working on themselves, and that was actually that many of their corporate partners were asking them for this, that they had people moving into their apartment buildings with Teslas and going like, how the hell do I charge this? Or um, they were seeing that they could get cheaper interest rates on debt if they could get green bonds, right? So they were seeing a lot more of this existential, hey, it's pretty good for our business to be clean and green. You know, if you are renting out office space to Google or Facebook or Apple, who are the largest office space users, you know, in America for the, the class A stuff, they're not going into your building unless it's lead platinum, you know, quadruple certified, blah, blah, blah. Um, and so many of the uh, the sort of stakeholders in and around the real estate industry were driving the real estate industry to at least get uh, climate curious three years ago. And now I think that that uh, sort of pounding drum has gotten a lot stronger since then. I wonder how much, it's interesting because I agree with you that it's very much an opportunity story. I would imagine that for those large corporates in this space, it is also a risk story. I wonder at what point they started to also feel like, we have to do this, you know, like, I feel like you've done a very good job of painting the opportunity story, but at least some of them must have been like, hey, there are new rules that we have to comply with and we don't have the materials or the know-how or the, you know, I wonder how much the kind of regulatory drumbeat has also contributed to this being the right time to put a lot of money behind this. Yep. Absolutely. And I think we we see in all of the big cities in America, we've got things like Local Law 97 in New York. And for those who aren't familiar, Local Law 97 is effectively a law that basically fines you if you're a building owner and your building emits more than a certain amount of CO2. They basically measure how much energy you're using, you need to do some accounting, and they give you a quota of this is you know the maximum amount you're allowed to emit and anything over that we're going to find you. Okay. We've got similar laws like that in the vast majority of the big cities around America. But the point is is yes, many of these regulations were coming and they could see them. And when you analyze how to make a building clean and green, existing technologies only roughly get you about half of the way there. 
Mm. So most of these building owners could say, great, I can put in all of the LED light bulbs I want and maybe some heat pumps and you know, potentially put some solar on the roof, but that's quite difficult on a 30-story you know, high rise. But all of the things that they could just do didn't actually solve the problem that they had, that there was sort of the other 50% of the problem that relied on technology that didn't exist. Mm-hmm. And the real estate industry is a very strange industry because it is very, very um, uh, not concentrated, meaning We've got 115 of the world's largest corporations in and around the space. I would be shocked if we actually even scratch 5% market penetration in the real estate industry writ large, right? Wow. Whereas if you looked at any other industry, right, you know, big tech, if you've got the top five companies in big tech, it's like 60% of the market, right? Or big oil, right? You're done. It's pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. The vast majority of every other industry is a lot easier for the industry to come together and push for these sort of industry-wide changes because the industries are so much more concentrated. Real estate is a very ephemeral, unconcentrated industry. And so it's very difficult for them to come together um, in in a consortium to sort of move technologies like this down the cost curve. And so coming together in a consortium like football, where they can actually put money into these companies and bring them down the cost curve as an industry is very heavily required in real estate, whereas other industries, because your big players are such high percentages of the market, they can kind of do it themselves. Um, I really want to geek out about the technologies that they need. But first, I, I want to put a slightly finer point on the the kind of the uniqueness of Fifth Wall, because in the venture world, for people who are totally unfamiliar, there are funds that, whose investors are, you know, big financial institutions and pension funds and wealthy individuals. There are at companies like BMW, corporate venture funds, CVCs, corporate VC. How unusual is it? I mean, it, it's it's could it only happen in real estate where you have so many companies that you would have a fund that is this consortium of corporations that just need solutions and are willing to sort of fund the risky yep. capital to make them happen? I, I think the common thread here is it's going to be industries that are sort of and not concentrated the way I just described. So yeah. we do see a couple of other ones in other non-concentrated industries, for example, in the utilities industry, right? There are 3,000 utilities in America, and therefore, by definition, none of them have more than like 1%, um, uh, 1% market share. Right. And there you see you know, big funds like Air, EIP, Energy, and Impact Partners. Each of those 1% is a total monopoly, but... yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So there, there's a whole other set of indus- uh, issues with the utilities industry, right? Yeah. But there we do see this model actually working where where a fund can bring together the industry like that. But no, in the in the other industries that are more concentrated, there frankly isn't a need for this, right? So, you know, Google, Google or Facebook's uh, in-house venture capital funds can on their own be hundreds of millions, if not billions of dollars. I actually don't know how much... Uh, Google Capital has under management most recently, but it's billions of dollars, right? Yeah. Whereas no single utility could put billions of dollars into a venture capital fund. No single um, you know, mining company or real estate company could put billions of dollars into their own fund. So it's in industries like this that someone like Fifth Wall is critical to bringing the industry together. Time for a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about how Fifth Wall is deploying all this money, what's super interesting in this universe of potential investments, and how to tackle a super complicated industry one company at a time. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to Everybody in the Pool. We're talking with Greg Smithies, a partner at the venture capital firm Fifth Wall and the co-lead of the climate technology group there, trying to decarbonize property and real estate. You know, no big deal. Okay, so let's talk about what they need. What do they need? You know, I think there's this, <laughs> that's the looming yep. question is how do we actually make this whole industry cleaner? Yeah. What kinds of, you know, what kinds of, of investments, unexpected, the more unexpected, the better, can you tell us about? Uh, absolutely. And I, I'd like to really just start out with the problem here on the building side is that there's no single silver bullet, right? You know, people think, hey, let's just, you know, make the grid clean because then all of the electricity going to the buildings is clean. You know, it turns out that most buildings are only 30 or 40% electricity and the rest is natural gas for heating. Right. It's a very complicated business because it touches so much of the energy industry. It touches so much of the materials industry, right? 40% of the world's raw materials are going into construction, into buildings. And then buildings touch so much of the rest of the economy, meaning like your warehouses are going through them. Data centers are running inside them, right? Your distribution centers. So last mile delivery and logistics is sort of uh, in scope here. So that's a long way of saying that just the simple premise of, hey, let's let's decarbonize the built environment actually turns out to be extremely complicated because there's no silver bullet, right? And I always make this joke, how do you make you know, passenger vehicles clean and green? It's easy. You just make them electric and you're done. I know that's like very hand wavy, but it's like one problem, make the cars electric, good to go. Yep. In, in buildings, it's a lot more complicated. And then there are component parts within that, but they're easier to identify because it's just a shorter list. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. It's a much shorter list. We do have, it's just the largest asset class in business on the, on the planet that touches so much of the rest of the economy. So because of that, we do try to think of it in a little bit of a systematic way to simplify this for ourselves, because otherwise I think we'd, we'd lose the forest for the trees in terms of what we're actually looking to invest in. Um, we start up, just think of the life cycle of a building. A building starts out as raw materials. It's your concrete, your steel, your glass, your um, your sands, things like that, that go into construction. Now, these are massive industries. Concrete is the second most used material on the planet after water. I think actually you've, you've um, interviewed one of our portfolio companies, Brimstone, on this topic. Yep. But the point is that these are very large industries that are very difficult to decarbonize. So we start out with those, the sort of fundamentals. Then we go into how do you put up buildings themselves? So think of one of the reasons why, and I can remember this campaign slogan, the rent is too damn high from back in the day, is um, that we just do not have enough houses. Why do we not have enough houses? Is because they are too expensive to build, right? So we do, and this isn't just an American problem, it's a global problem. Nowhere is there enough housing uh, because everywhere it's too expensive to build these things. We want to build more houses and more dwellings and more office spaces, but we want those things to go up in a clean, green way where you end up with like highly efficient, passive standard houses. Um, and so here we look at things like prefab, modular construction, 3D printing, stuff like that. But that's just on the sort of new construction side. And, and I'm sure you'll you'll hear these statistics that uh, America, uh, sorry, the world is going to build the equivalent of one New York City every single month for the next 25 years, which is crazy. Wow. So we are doing a lot of new construction. However, we've got $326 trillion 
of existing building stock out there. And from an efficiency point of view, you know, you see this when you fly into any city, the percentage of buildings with like solar on their roof, negligible. It makes me crazy. <laughs> it's nuts, right? Just... The, the technical term for the, from an efficiency point of view would be these, these buildings are just crap, right? Um, so, so how do we go and retrofit in technologies into all of these buildings? And here it's a lot of boring stuff. Frankly, it's better windows, it's better doors, mm-hmm. it's insulation. And that's before you even get onto the somewhat sexy things like the soda on the roof, the battery on the side of the building, and the, and the EV charger in the parking lot. But it's just a massive, massive endeavor because there are just millions upon millions of buildings out there. And anytime you try to fix a building, it involves humans to who need to go and install this stuff, right? And we don't have enough electricians. We don't have enough um, HVAC engineers, right? So it's a very multifaceted problem on this retrofit thing. Right. And then final piece of the puzzle here on the building life cycle is we do look at end of life and waste and recycling. So think of this as the building itself. About 60% of the materials in the world's landfills is building rubble. It would be incredible if we would just reuse that, right? Or maybe not knock those buildings down. But then also about 60% of the world's waste goes through buildings at some point. So uh, it's a very logical place for us to do things like divert stuff from landfill, turn it into energy if we can't, recycle it, things like that. And then just to, to make sure we're looking at absolutely everything, we do also look at climate resiliency. And climate resiliency goes to my joke earlier on, which is that buildings are worthless if they're underwater on fire. Yeah. Um, so here it's a lot of sort of big data AI analytics around climate mapping and climate prediction for which are the buildings that are going to be bearing the brunt of all of this climate change. You can't leave buildings, right? So how do you price this in, insurance products, stuff like that? But it also goes all the way through to actual physical protection. So think seawalls, think paints that can stop a building burning down in a, in a wildfire, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. This is a very, very large remit across everything that you look at. Happy to talk about some fun sci-fi examples in them, some boring examples in them. But um, yeah, where would you like to go? So let's start with the sci-fi stuff, and then we're going to dig into the boring because really that's where the meat is. Yeah, that's it. that's where the meat is. So let's start with with completely sci-fi because it honestly could have come out of like a, a, a Herbert Dune novel, atmospheric water generation, which people go, huh? What does that mean? So it turns out with climate change, and we're starting to see this right now, where uh, the whole West Coast of America is, is not just in a drought, it's going through what's known as aridification, which just basically means that it is slowly turning into a desert over the next you know, couple hundred years. Mm-hmm. So it's not that we're in a little, you know, no water short period, it's just it's going to get worse and worse and worse. And so we started looking at this from a point of view, very practically, we started out at Forex which was if you're a home builder in um, the West of America and you're trying to say cool permits to build 3,000 homes in Phoenix, which is actually a small project in Phoenix, right? They were starting to get pushback that, hey, we're not going to give you a permit for this project because there's not enough water, right? And then they started saying, okay, you've got to have water recycling in your your new 3,000 home um, project. And that's sort of the state of where we are. But you can just draw a line and say, okay, well, if we went from water's available to now you have to recycle water at some point it's going to be that the buildings are going to have to create the water themselves Mm -hmm. so we started looking at this concept called atmospheric water generation um after talking to about 60 companies ended up investing in a company called source water what do they have they've got something that looks just like a solar panel but when you put it out in the sun instead of electricity coming out of it water is flowing out of that panel right and it sounds nuts uh it works and they've 
deployed you know, tens of thousands of these panels in 50 or 60 countries around the world, right? So it does actually work in the real world. This is my favorite, where it sounds sci-fi, but actually works. And then most importantly, everybody sort of asks, okay, well, how much does it cost, right? Right now, they're at you know, two or cents per liter coming out of these panels, which probably means nothing to you. But to put that in perspective, that is round about the same cost as if you were to do like a diesel generator doing reverse osmosis, which by the way is how about 60% of the world gets their drinking water, right? Obviously terribly bad for the planet because you're trucking diesel into some remote place, you're running a diesel generator, you're using lots and lots of energy and you're you know, desalinating or, or cleaning water that way. So they are com- cost competitive with that right now. Yeah. But more importantly, just like we saw solar come down 10X in the last decade, Around about five years ago, these guys were at 17 to 20 cents a meter, right? Now they're at two-ish, which means if you just keep that keep that cost curve going down, soon they're going to be at under one cent a meter. Mm-hmm. If you become cheaper than that, right, um, you just basically become the cheapest way of making water that humanity has ever seen. The same way that solar is now the cheapest form of electricity humanity has ever seen. This company is very line of sight to being the cheapest form of water humanity will, has ever seen. Let's talk about the boring parts because they get to this kind of question of of what is investable yep. with the you know return expectation that a venture firm has. Because like when I hear you talking about um retrofit, for example, yep. a lot of those things, you know, I spoke with the uh, Sunrun who said like a big reason that solar isn't on every roof is actually regulation and permitting. Yep. It's that there's this like every in every municipality has different permitting. That's not a venture opportunity. So how do you sort of find within those systems and within those boring solutions companies that will make you a lot of money? Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of ways to describe this. I'll, I'll first do just a little little rabbit hole down the, down the solar permitting issue because it is so annoying. Yeah. So in the US, just to give you sort of round numbers, to put solar on a roof, it costs you round about $1 if we normalize it, $1 for the panels. And then round about $1 for the humans to install it and round about $1 for just permitting and paperwork, which is crazy, right? So your actual hardware is only a third of the cost. Mm. Um, Now, this is why I was complaining we don't have enough electricians and stuff. So being able to install more cheaply, we can take a third of the cost out, you know, roughly halve that, say, with just more humans or easier to install solar panel type things. Mm -hmm. But this paperwork problem, this is, uh, I don't know, anybody listening doing buzzword bingo we can throw AI at it. So I'm actually quite excited about generative AI's ability to fill in paperwork. Yeah. So I think there's hope on the, hope on the horizon there just to go down that, uh, that little um, rabbit hole and it'll come by way of generative AI being able to fill in paperwork, which it actually turns out is pretty good at doing. But more specifically to your point on how do you make venture capital returns in boring industries is two things. One is, and, and just for, for people's reference, you know, venture capital is normally looking for like a 30 to 50% IRR on a deal. You know, so annually, that deal needs to be making half its money, and that needs to compound, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a big hurdle to get to. Right. So um, step one, venture capital 101, pick big markets. And this is what I love about the real estate industry, because there isn't a bigger market. So just to give you a crazy, crazy example... The market just for electric motors, just inside air conditioning systems, is a $50 billion per year industry. 
there aren't a lot of $50 billion industries out there. And that's yeah. just for one component just inside, just inside air conditioners, right? And it's growing because the world is getting hotter. And we've got a growing middle class who all wants air conditioning. Blah, blah, blah. So step one, pick big, uh, big markets. Step two is figure out if there are other sources of capital other than dilutive venture capital. So that's basically saying, are there grants out there? Is there project finance to help build a factory? For example, a company that needs to go and make hundreds of thousands of those motors, you don't need to get all of your money for building a factory to make those motors from a venture capitalist like me. That, that factory is a hard asset. It's probably going to hire a whole bunch of people in terms of jobs. So chances are that there are grants out there, there are tax breaks for it. And there's a whole other category of finance out there known as project finance. And this is debt and equity instruments who will pay for that, but they've got a much lower cost of capital. They're looking at you know 10 to 15% returns as opposed to me, I'm looking for 40. Okay. And then finally, before I let you go, how, how much are you engaging at the policy level? The other kind of like extremely boring systems level part of this. Yep. Certainly there are massive tailwinds now in the United States, at least with the infrastructure bill, the... IRA and the third one, <laughs> the Chips Act. Yeah, the Chips Act. Yep. We saw in Clean Tech 1.0 like a little bit of a reliance, right? The reason that Solyndra and the Obama administration took so much heat for these failures was uh, because they had offered big subsidies. Companies relied on those subsidies and then died. Frankly, that's the yep. venture model, and yep. I think it was just sort of misunderstood. Yep. But it's interesting because, like, I hear some investors say, "I I won't look at a company if." They are dependent on the IRA for getting where they're going. But, you know, the way you've described it, like that's actually how you get across the valley of death. Absolutely. So, look, I think uh, a couple of things. One, let's actually defend the Obama administration and the, and the DOE's uh, loan program office at the time, because whilst they wrote off Solyndra, and I think that was $700 million they lost there, they also financed Tesla and made a whole whack of money yeah. on that side. So actually, I think it, out of their entire portfolio at that point in time, they made a lot of money, like it was net positive. They, they actually returned capital as opposed to uh, being a money sink. Mm -hmm. So, And then let's look at all of these companies out there. Actually, some of the biggest returning investments in the last 20 years have been these capital-intensive, difficult businesses like Tesla, like Amazon, which people would like to say is an online business, but they've got a hell of a lot of warehouses and trucks and they run their own airline at this point, you know, yeah. things like that. So so let's just say I think the jury is out on whether or not software investing versus hardware investing, one is one is better or worse, because actually some of the biggest returning investments in the last 20 years have been sort of quote unquote hardware businesses. So on the regulator regulatory side, yes, free money is awesome. It's great, right? Let's not bash free money. I love it. Um, <laughs> however, as an investor, you also have to make sure that your business has a viable business without the free money um, and that any free money out there just accelerates them. And so I did make this joke at the beginning, but we, we ensure that every company we invest in, their product can be sold to a climate change denying CFO. Mm -hmm. And it might be the case that they can't do that today, but there is line of sight and path to the point where their technology can stand on its own two feet without any free money, without any tax incentives. And the fat middle of the market who are buying things just for economic reasons as opposed to ethical reasons will still buy their product because it is you know, better, cheaper, faster, whatever it happens to be. And then you use the free money that's out there in order to just accelerate how quickly you can get to that point. And a great example of this would be um, 
We've got a lithium-ion battery recycling company. I think a lot of people are very worried about electric vehicles and all of this stuff because of you know we're going to still need to take stuff out of the ground to make all of those batteries. So it would be great if we could recycle them. Uh, so we're invested in a company called Ascend Elements there. Now, when we first invested in that company, we knew it was probably going to take, and I know previously I said a billion dollars to get to IPO. This company was probably going to take $3 billion of capital to get to IPO. And we had mapped out this path where it was probably going to take you know 10 to 12 years to get all of that capital together to do it. And then along comes the infrastructure bill. And the infrastructure bill gave them a $480 million grant for their first factory. And the fact that they were able to get that, that $480 million then attracted a uh, outside sort of private extra $500 million. So basically, we got a billion dollars into that company roughly two, maybe three years faster than we thought we were going to get it. That allowed them to uh, build that factory two to three years faster than we thought they were going to. And so it accelerated. But the point is, is that company probably would have gotten to you know where they were going to go in 10 to 12 years, which was our original investment time horizon. We were happy with that. And then all of this free money then just really put it on steroids. Amazing. Greg, I feel like I could geek out about uh, finance all day long. And so I'm just going to call it here. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Thank you so much for the time today. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks so much. And that's it for this episode of Everybody in the Pool. Thank you so much for listening. Email me your thoughts and suggestions to in at everybodyinthepool.com and find all the latest episodes and more at everybodyinthepool.com, the website. And if you want to become a subscriber and get an ad-free version of the show, hit the link in the description in your podcast app of choice. Thank you to those of you who already have. See you next week. 